What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you got you? Gregory Zuckerman is a special writer at the Wall Street Journal, a 20-year veteran of the paper and a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business journalism. On this episode, he discusses discovering your unique skills and using them to your advantage, how he's developed as a writer, and what it's like covering some of the titans of business. Greg's latest book, The Man Who Solved the Market, and How James Simons Became One of the Most Successful Investors in History, is one of Sean's favorite books of 2019. Jim Simons could be the greatest money manager of all time. To put his performance into perspective, $1 invested in the Medallion Fund from 1988 to 2018 would have grown to over $20,000 net of fees, while $1 invested in the S&P 500 would have only grown to $20 over the same time period. Even a $1 investment in Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway would have grown to only $100 during this time. Enjoy this episode with best-selling author Gregory Zuckerman. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Gregory, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Oh, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, very excited. I mean, this podcast is all about finding people who are doing those extraordinary things. And what I'm going to love about this conversation is here you're this prolific writer, but then you get to write about some pretty amazing people at the same time. Do, do you enjoy that bit of your work? Yeah. So I'm at the Wall Street Journal day to day. And, you know, most stories you spend a few days on, maybe a few weeks, if you get lucky, a month. But uh, a book, you can roll up your sleeves and travel, get to meet people, spend real time with them and sink your teeth into topics that you're excited about. So, yeah, I love it. So with this excitement, how did you first get into journalism? I stumbled into it, actually. I I grew up um, loving newspapers. We would read a couple uh, each day, two different papers in my hometown in Providence, Rhode Island. I get the New York Times and the local paper. I would walk to the local bank and read the Wall Street Journal. We, we didn't read the journal at home. I would check out other kind of things. Barron's and my camp counselor used to bring back to me. I used to love finance and I used to love newspapers. I never thought about doing this uh, as, as a job. Um, I always liked business and I always loved investing. So I always thought I'd go work on Wall Street. And I graduated and I did well. I uh, went to a liberal arts school, Brandeis University, graduated and figured I'd just go work on Wall Street. And I couldn't get a job. I couldn't even get an interview back then. It was a rough time on Wall Street. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any experience. I spent most of my summers like working with kids in camp. I didn't think about actually getting some experience. 
And um, it was a downturn at the time. And yeah, people with no experience from the art schools weren't who what they they wanted. So um, I started some businesses. Some worked. Some didn't work. Most didn't work that well. I did things like um, I did college tours. I took kids, um, high school students, on tours of college campuses and charged people for that. Um, and it was fun and enjoyable. The kids liked it. The parents liked it. But I didn't make much money. I didn't charge enough. Insurance was expensive, et cetera. And I was just sort of looking around for a career. And I saw an ad in the newspaper for a job. Back then, they had such things. And um, it was to be a reporter on a, a trade publication, a financial trade publication. And I had never worked on my high school newspaper or, or college newspaper. So I didn't have any clips to show them. So they gave me a quote unquote leaked document. And they said, hey, go, go write about this. <laughs> And it was like a merger. I think it was like City Group and somebody merging. And I was like, I was taking this test and I was like, wait, they're going to pay me to write about Wall Street. I love it. I love Wall Street. I love writing. I, I never thought about this. I'm like, I didn't even think, it didn't occur to me that this could be a job. I don't know why. I never thought about being a financial reporter. Then I was like, wow, this is what I should be doing. Yeah, kind of the merger of things you're really interested in. So with no real yeah. writing experience, what, what were you doing early just to hone that craft and develop your writing skills? It's a great question. So I took that test and I and I remember thinking I aced this thing. I did a great job and I got the job. And then um, later they told me that actually my writing was wasn't good at all. I was doing what they do in universities and as an academic, which is a reverse pyramid. In other words, you give a little theme at the top of your paper if you remember from back in college, but your like conclusion is really good. Summary is excellent. And in the newspaper business. It's this complete opposite of what you should be doing. No one reads to the end, or not everyone reads to the end of your stories. So you hit them up top with the best stuff. And so they had to, I had to completely relearn that stuff. And I did. I basically I just read books and articles of people that I admire um, at all kinds of publications. Books like um, James Stewart from the New York Times, and he was at the Wall Street Journal at one point, too. Uh, Den of Thieves, that kind of stuff, Barbarians of the Gate for for narratives and 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 just newspaper articles, Wall Street Journal and others. And what I, it turns out, I was really good at, and they hired me for this reason. It wasn't my writing? It was. It turns out, I was really good at getting information from people on the phone. And they tested me. They gave me. They said, "Go call a source and and try to get information. Try to write the story by asking them questions." And the source was the person interviewing me, that my potential boss. And he's like, "Yeah, your writing wasn't great, Greg, but." you're really good at um, talking to people and getting information out. It was a, a, a talent that I never knew I had. And I, I'm a big believer that we all have some talent that we're better than, than most others in the world. I, and I just stumbled into finding mine. I love that concept. That's something I believe in too. And I feel like eno enough people don't dig deeper on that, knowing what their hidden talents are and then capitalizing on that. So when you really discover this through someone else, what are the next steps for you? How do you even go further with that talent? Yeah, that was like very eye-opening. It was like an aha kind of thing where, I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think everyone's got something, some competitive advantage. And I tell young people all the time, try to find something that you're better than, maybe not the rest of the world up, but better than most at. I remember I heard a, um, a speech once by one of the authors of Freakonomics. I forgot it was Dubner or not. And he said that his father was the world's expert or one of the world's experts at like intestinal gas or something like that where no one really else wanted to do it or no one was really good at it and he was the world's expert and he would fly around the world and speaking gigs and all that kind of stuff and listen i'm not uh, necessarily i'm not sure it's equivalent to being a doctor or or being an expert in gas but um 
I do what I do and I think I'm better than most others, but I'd probably be worse than most others at many other jobs out there. I just stumbled into it. And um, so it's easy for me to tell a young person to, you know, look for that, but to the extent you can and try to and try to find some niche, something that you're just a little better than everybody else or most others at. It could be within a sector, it could be a, an approach to, to something, um, a way of, of doing some, some industry, some business. So when it came to me, when I realized I'm really good at talking to investors and talking to people on the buy side and getting people to share information that they shouldn't. And, you know, I look around the newsroom I'm at the Wall Street right now, Wall Street Journal right now, there are people that are smarter than I am, that are better writers, that um, maybe work harder, I don't know, probably not. I work harder than most, but but there are people that have better that have advantages over me. But I'm not sure there are people here that enjoy the subject matter as much as I do. I love finance. I love investing. I love talking to investors, and I've decided to stick with that in my whole career. Yeah, I've discovered when I'm truly interested and passionate, similar to your book here. That's when I have my best interviews. You said a minute ago you're very good at getting people to share what they normally wouldn't or shouldn't. Anything you do that you've articulated just to be able to do that? Yeah, so I have different approaches for different people, but I mostly, my strategy mostly is to try to find a reason why they want to, should want to talk to me. And I do believe that there's always going to be a reason. So this book I just wrote, The Man Who Solved the Market, it's about the most secretive firm on Wall Street. These guys are multimillionaires. They sign 30-page non-disclosure agreements. They are told you'll get fired if you talk to somebody like me. So it was the hardest project of my life. But once again, the, the goal I had to find for each of the people that ended up talking to me and confiding in me, there's got to be some reason. There's always some reason. Maybe it's their reputation. Maybe it's just the, the, the need to share some experience. They've gone through something remarkable. These people have, have conquered Wall Street, and they're not the people who should have conquered Wall Street. It's, it, they're not finance people. They're mathematicians, scientists. It's, and they've gone through a remarkable experience. And yeah, they're told not to talk, but geez, I'm sure they're aching. And I, and I do believe that many were to just kind of share a little snippet of, of what they went through. And, and they've got nobody else. And I'm sort of like this big ear. I, I'm like eager to hear. I'm a very curious person. I, I think everyone's got an interesting life. You put me on a barbecue next to a dentist. I'm sure he's, he or she's gone through something remarkable, right? Some, some life-changing event some setback. I love hearing how people have dealt with setbacks. I, I, on the side, I write some books for young people with my two sons and we talk to sports stars and how they overcame adversity and challenges in their youth and racism and, and, and abuse and, and all kinds of challenges. And, uh, you know, adults of all kinds, everybody's overcome something. So anyway, I'm a curious person. I, I think I like to hear what people uh, have done in their lives, how they've overcome things. And yeah, that, that's kind of um, my my approach. That's and that's my approach for this book too. To to um, be curious and be genuinely interested and get people to talk by telling them why it's in their interest. And it always, to some extent, is. So I'm I'm genuine when I make that point. Yeah, your new book, The Man Who Solved the Market. That's what got me really curious in you. Uh, I've read some of your articles throughout the years. This was the first book of yours I read, and I plowed through it, Greg. I think I finished it in two days, and I, I was just doing oh. my, my top uh, 2019 books, and this was in the top five because I really did enjoy it. So I would love hearing some some insights about it. So I just need to know, what was even the start of this process like? How did you come across Jim Simons and Medallion Fund? So I got into this business to some extent because I I don't know if I want to say admire investors. I, I think there's a lot to learn from really smart investors, and it's been a privilege. I've been at the Wall Street Journal for 
20, 23 years at this point, and a lot of what I do is talk to smart investors, billionaires and others about how they've made a lot of money and what they've overcome, the obstacles, et cetera. And unfortunately, over the years, it's gotten much harder, become much harder for people to beat the market. And I've become a little bit jaded, I would say, and even cynical because I'll meet investors who charge way too much and and have pretty pathetic performance. And Jim Simons has, has been the one exception. So I've really wanted to write about him because the guy's had crazy returns, 66% a year since 1988. And he's also a pioneer. This approach using mathematical models, computers to make decisions is um, something that everybody in Wall Street is trying to do today. 31% of all trading is done by automated computers as opposed to old school intuition and, and judgment and gut instinct. But it's not just He's not just a pioneer on Wall Street, which is why I was fascinated by him. He's a pioneer in society. So the whole idea of predictive algorithms, the stuff that Netflix and Facebook and Amazon do today, they were doing in the 80s, late 80s and early 90s when you know Mark Zuckerberg was in grade school. So they're pioneers in that regard. They're pioneers just in the whole um, issue of big data and data science. So in so many ways, I found... Jim Simons and what his firm is doing, fascinating. And, and the fact that they're the most secretive firm and they didn't want anybody writing a book. And Simons, I reached out to him, he told me, I'm not working with you, Greg. In some ways that sort of, I don't know, added to the allure a little bit, made the challenge a little bit greater. And some sick part of me thought that made me want to do even more, the fact that they didn't want to work with me. Yeah, when he tells you that, adds a little fuel to the fire. What are next steps then? So the, the main source for this book it seems like they're not even going to talk with you. So then what do you do? Any, anything that you really yeah. dig deep on? Yeah, so generally with these kind of um, issues, circumstances, you, you want to find people um, who have some experience, some inside knowledge. And that could be people who used to work there. It could be people that were friends with Simons, people that were investors with Simons. He doesn't have many anymore, or at least in this key medallion fund, he ended up kicking everybody out. But for years he did. So a lot of times, and this was a privilege too, a lot of times it means talking to 75-year-old, 80-year-old even, former colleagues, people that worked with him back in the day, either at the firm or even earlier in his life when he was an academic. And that's part of the privilege of, of my job. I get to drive out from my home in suburban New Jersey out to Princeton and talked to some 80-year-old brilliant mathematician who knew Jim Simons back in the day. They were colleagues, and he tells me great stories about him. And you start building off of that. Okay, he tells me a story. You got to verify that. You talk to somebody else who maybe knew about it. He tells you something else. He tells you somebody else you should be speaking to. So all these people sort of around Simons. So I, I kept circling him, circling him. And, and talking to more people and you start adding up the sources and adding up the stories and some you can verify, some you can't. And it's just basically um, adding information. And then at some point I convinced him to sit down with me. He still wasn't clear. It was still wasn't clear. He would talk to me for the book. And basically what I did was I showed him a picture on my phone and I'm not sure this is what did it or not, but basically I showed him a picture on the phone and I asked him, hey, do you know what this is? It was a picture of a, of a home in suburban Boston. And he said, no, I don't know what 
what that home is. And, and I said, that's your childhood home in Newton, Massachusetts. And I didn't pursue it. I didn't say anything after that, but um, I tried to plant a seed and basically showing him that picture, I was hoping he would say two things. A, Zuckerman's not going away. He went all the way up to Boston to track down my family home. What the heck? And B, that I take it seriously. And I'm not just writing some, some, some sensational book, but I'm going to put the work into it, the research. And I'm willing to go to all, you know, let's not go crazy. I mean, driving up to Boston, I wasn't going to Alaska or anything, but it still, it showed in a level of diligence, I think, on my part. I hope it was. That was the goal, that it would say send a message to him that I'm not going away and might as well talk to him because I'm taking it seriously. I mean, part of his reluctance, I think, was he was worried I would write something that wasn't accurate. He's a mathematician. They hate, hate, hate errors and inaccuracies. And it's not to say that everything is perfect in my book, but um, it's close, I think, because I would have heard from these guys if, if it wasn't. So I, I, that was the goal, to get as much information as I could around from people around him. I had some ex, some experience with him, some stories, and then send a message to him. And also all those, every person I talked to, I knew it was going to get back to Simons. Every single guy, guy and, or woman from back in the day. Oh, Jim, by the way, I just talked to this guy, Greg Zuckerman. Zuckerman again, I'm sure he's thinking to himself, <laughs> my God, this guy's not going away. It's been, you know, six months, over six months. I keep hearing about this guy, Zuckerman. He's, he keeps asking about me. Jeez, maybe I should sit down and talk to him. That was the hope anyway. Yeah, no, the, the diligence on your behalf was clearly evident in the book, and I love so many extreme examples and little bits of nuance that you were able to pull out. I'm interested, when you finally get Jim in the room, what's that moment like for you? It's funny. You, you, uh, you don't want to, you want to be focused. You've, you don't, you have a limited amount of time, so, and you've got so many questions. That was the thing. I had to like narrow it down. I had so many things, and I wanted to ask questions that I knew, questions that I knew he would answer because I didn't want to waste time with questions that he would blow me off on. I only had a set amount. I think I had like an hour that first time. But I also, so I wanted to ask potentially difficult questions. At the same time, I wanted to come back again and ask more. I didn't want this to be the only meeting. So I didn't want to ask the questions that were, that were too difficult um, so or offensive, uh, intrusive, Etc. So there was. I tried to have some some balance. Tried to be some balance between the t the two of them. And it was it, you know it was pretty business like. On the one hand, yeah, this is my white whale, and I'm finally in front of him. On the other hand, this is sort of what I do, and I deal with these billionaires all day long. And sometimes, and I do think pe too many people defer to them, and I, I tried not be too, not be too deferential. Yeah, I'd love to get your insights. I mean, you've been in a lot of rooms with some very powerful people. Are there any things that would just surprise people on the outside looking in? Much more insecure than you would think. Yes. That's not, nece not, ne not necessarily Simons. I have to say not Simons, but most of the billionaires I deal with. You'd be surprised how many will call. There's a, someone I'm thinking of who is worth a, a, a billions and billions. It's a pretty well-known individual. And he sent me a note, sent me a text after my book came out. I have a, an index, I have an appendix at the back of the book where I compare Jim Simons with all the great investors and how Simons is better. His track record is better than all the big ones, Buffett, 
and I'm looking at it here, Soros and uh, others, Ray Dalio, et cetera. And he was upset, and Peter Lynch, et cetera. He was upset that he wasn't mentioned in there. And the, <laughs> again, the point of this appendix is that Simons is better than these other people, but he wanted me to at least put them, put him in that category of people that Simons is better than. Um, and, and, and frankly, I could have, maybe I should have. He's not as well known as the people I mentioned, but he's a, still a superstar and I could have added him in there, but it just goes to show you, yeah, they're much more sensitive. One, one person always calls up and asks for a different picture. He doesn't like the photo that we use in the paper when we write about him. And so he's sensitive about his appearance, I guess. Um, a lot of them have, the, the best tips I get at the Wall Street Journal are from these big name investors about how one of their competitors isn't doing well. So they all <laughs> get upset. You know, they all say, oh, you only write negative stories, Greg. They all get on me about our attitude at the Wall Street Journal towards the industry. Why do you always have to write negative stuff? Well, partly because you guys are feeding us the negative stories. <laughs> so that tells you a little something. Yeah, we were, we were talking a minute ago about just the, the amount of work that goes into this, especially compared to just writing a, a, a more local news story to, to the paper that you're with. What is the process actually like when you're going to take on a task of writing a book? It's, it's really imposing. It's intimidating. It, and you put so much work into it. And if you, at one point I was thinking about trying to figure out per hour how much I was making and you do not want to go down that road. <laughs> so it, it's for me, I lay out, I've got these folders on my floor, of my office, and it's a mess. And I basically I'll, I'll, I'll lay out every folder has a different theme. It could be sort of early mathematicians in my book, people that work with him. It could be the early period of Simon's life, the middle period, the later period, and then you break that up. Then you have things like tax disputes. You've got different themes for every folder. You lay it all out. We're talking dozens and dozens of folders. And then you proceed to kind of go through chronologically and slowly the folders start clearing up and you see some, some of the floor again as you pick up a folder and you go through and you put it into the book. But, um, it's, it's, uh, and then there are going to be holes and you have to fill in the holes and it's intimidating and it's, it's, it's a daunting, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, um, pursue it unless you have some passion. I always tell people or think about writing books, you better be into the topic because there are these 3 AMs when everybody's sleeping upstairs and it's just you and the topic, and you got to be into it. And thank God I found, so far I've found three for, I've written three adult books and two for young people, but I found three that I'm really passionate about and don't mind spending 3 a.m.s dealing with the minutiae. There, there were literally paragraphs in my book, especially the math. There's a lot of complex math that I had to boil down and ex understand and then explain. And it literally took me months, months to get a few paragraphs right. I'm not saying I didn't work on other things at the same time, but I, I would write it up, send it to an expert. They'd send back all these criticisms. Greg, who do you think you are writing this? These are math top <laughs> mathematicians. And like I would boil down like, I don't know, hidden Markov models, things like that. I would try to define it and give an example. And they would get all upset. And one guy I'm thinking in particular, he really was pretty insulting. And then I realized, just don't, don't, let, don't let these people, their insults, affect you. Yes, what you've sent them is not perfect. That's why you've sent it to them, because you wanted help improving it. And 
slowly but surely, they, they'll give you a couple of ideas in between the insults. So you, you ignore the insults and then you take it for what you, you read it, read what, that which has substance of their criticism and then you improve on it. And then you send it to somebody else, Greg, nah, you, you got to rethink this. And then he'll tell you how to, re in his view, and then you eventually get to the point where you're pretty much there. And so this was just, this was a harder project than, than all mine in the past. They're all hard in their own ways, but this was a, a really difficult one. Yeah, the other two books, The Frackers and then The Greatest Trade Ever. So what keeps you going during, during those 3 a.m. nights? Huh. Um, uh, the fact that I've got a book advance that I've probably cashed and I spent it or parts of it, so I, I don't want to – Pat, give it back. Honestly, for, for this for, for this one, I honestly I had an advance, and I literally kept it on my desk for about four months without cashing it because I wanted the ability to give it back to them if I couldn't pull this thing off because I was worried that I wouldn't be able to pull it off. It was a hard one. So at one point, Penguin got in touch with me. They said someone in accounting couldn't figure it out. It was like a uh, discrepancy and because what what writer doesn't cash? I mean, yeah, we right. don't make that much. What writers don't cash in advance? So uh, eventually, I did get more comfortable, a little more confident that I could pull it off, and eventually, I did cash it. Um, but what keeps me going is just the challenge and the light at the end of the tunnel, and what 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 I get excited about, and and and, and keep and, and really keeps me going is when you find some gem, some anecdote, some story that Simons did something to someone or someone did something and there was some tension within the firm that no one knows. I'm the only one in the world. I remember driving back from places where I heard um, I had a meeting with someone and they told me some story that I'm the only one in the world who knows it. And it's true at the journal too when someone gives you a tip, but all the more so when you're frustrated in, in a book. And that just gets you on top of the world. Someone has just told you something that um, you are going to put in the book. So eventually the whole world will know about it. It's some story. Like I've got this story in my book about Simons. And I don't know if you remember from the book, but basically Simons is in a meeting with some big name investors who focus on healthcare. They're healthcare and they're a foundation. And basically he's smoking like a chimney and, he, and he's got nowhere to put his cigarette out. And he looks around the room and he buries his cigarette in this cake, in this vanilla cake, and it's sizzling right in front of all these healthcare-related guys, his foundation dedicated to healthcare. And he puts a cigarette out right in front of them. It's sizzling and smoking, and he walks out the room. And it's just a cool scene. It says a lot. And I was I remember hearing that scene. I'm like, wow, that's a great story. People are going to like that. People are going to be amused by that. And for now, I'm the only one in the world who knows about it? And, you know, it's small in the scheme of things. Not everyone loves the scene like I do. But to me, it kept me going. No, I absolutely love that scene. I just thought it was so comical. And the best part is they closed the deal anyway, even though he puts the cigarette out in the cake. Tell me more. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Tell me more about Simons, though, because what really intrigued me. So he's got this mathematical background, probably one of the best 100 mathematicians of the last 100 years. But what I thought he did really well is his ability to recruit and then manage the talent he could bring to Medallion Fund. Is that one of the big takeaways for you? Yeah, I agree. That's what makes him unique. So he can do both sides of the brain. He's a quant. He's one of the greatest mathematicians, at least as a geometer, over the last 50, 100 years. A lot of his work still has impact in areas in mathematics and physics, certainly. He was a teacher. He's a code breaker. He's just a fascinating individual, and he's the original pioneering 
most successful quant, but he also is a person, people person in that he could communicate. You know, the joke about mathematicians uh, and now going mathematician is one who looks at down at your shoes as yeah. opposed to <laughs> his, his shoes or her <laughs> shoes. But Simon's not like that. He actually is a funny guy. He's a really witty He's enjoyable to be around. He always had – it wasn't the same with us, our relationship. He was always a little bit wary. When we sat down, it was a, it was a frustration on my part. I couldn't get him that comfortable. He was, he, was, he was good, but he wasn't as comfortable as he could be. But he's a funny guy. He's a chain smoker, as I say. He likes to drink. He's mischievous, can be a prankster. So he, and, he, and more importantly, he knows how to deal with people. He recruits really well. He knows what makes people tick. He developed this really internal culture that's really unique, where people share, they've got open code, they're uh, encouraged to critique each other, but in a positive way. So he, I think that's really the secret to his success, is the fact that he's, he, he's successful in, in both worlds. And, and, and as a result, um, he's been able to recruit well, but he also creates the, the, the right algorithms. He can do both. Yeah, I had never come across Simon's prior to your book, so I just became endlessly fascinated. Are there anyone else maybe on Wall Street that's under the radar right now but you think ha- has some of these gems yeah. in them like Simon's? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm, no, I, I would like to know about them uh, and I could write about them. Uh, I, there are people here and there, nobody on this level, nobody close to this level, no. So you mentioned even from a young age, you were interested in Wall Street and investing. So after writing this book, have you changed your mind on anything? Yeah, I think it's even harder than I'd expected to beat the market. I knew it was really hard, but at least in the short term, you're competing with people like Jim Simons. He's got 100 PhDs working there, and these aren't just PhDs. These are top of the field, mathematics, science, people ran departments, huge advances in areas like physics and astronomy, all kinds of different areas. So I'm much more convinced that people should either be in index funds and and not try to try to beat the market, low-cost index funds, or be more longer-term investors, because that's not what Simons and his colleagues do. They are two days, for the most part, their holding period. So you you got to do something that he's not, which is Again, be a bit of a longer term investor. And it's just really hard to get an information advantage today. So the old school approach is just harder. There are pockets of the market where you could do it. And if you're an individual investor, there are industries and companies for sure that I think you can get an edge on. But ab- across the whole market, it's just really hard. Who in your eyes is the best investor of all time? Oh, well, I mean, it's Simon's. If you consider him an investor, I don't know how you define that. I call him a money maker because some people would say, you know, two-day holding period isn't necessarily an investor. I mean, Buffett clearly is, although Buffett's underperformed for the last decade. Um, You can. Some people have critiqued my book by saying, "Well, Greg, you can't really, you can't really say, hey, Simon's is a better track record than Buffett because Simon's is key fund." that I write about is called the Medallion Fund. It's $10 billion. It's capped at $10 billion. Each year, they give back money so that it's uh, it doesn't get bigger than $10 billion. And yes, they use borrowed money, leverage, and it, at some point, it's over $100 billion in holdings, but that's still much smaller than Berkshire Hathaway, which is like three, $400 billion. But I would counter that by saying no one forced Warren Buffett to manage such a big endeavor. 
there's a reason Simon's kept it at $10 billion because it's hard to outperform when the, when the fund gets too big. So Buffett, you know, will go down as the greatest fundamental investor ever, but he is, let's be clear, he's underperformed the market for over a decade. So Greg, another question I'm so interested in, if you could have an unprecedented access with anyone, they'd tell you all, who would you sit down with? It could be dead or alive. And they would tell me all? Yeah. You, you could just full-on interview, ask anything you wanted, hear any story you want. Who would it be? Michael Jordan about why he really quit basketball. I would love to hear that conversation. <laughs> I thought about pursuing that book, but um, it, there's a lot of downsides to that <laughs> book um, in a lot of ways. So, yeah. I'd be curious. Yeah, me too. I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, though, so uh, I'm a little nervous how that one would end. But uh, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has truly been an honor. The book, like I mentioned, is one of the, the best books I've come across. It's, it's already one I've started to gift out. Where else do you want listeners staying connected with you? So feel free to email me. I get a lot of my best sources from people who you start off sort of giving me a constructive criticism or just playing criticism. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, sometimes they make good points, smart points. We're not perfect. People kind of have a negative view of the media often, but a lot of us are eager to improve and hear what people have to say, both positive and negative. It's nice to hear positive, but sometimes you learn the most from the negative. So email me, gregory.zuckerman at wsj.com, or I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, feel free to, uh, to reach out with any comments. Fantastic. Well, we'll have all that linked up along with where you guys can buy the book. So thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There. Oh, great to be here. Thanks a lot. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.